regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Welcome to uh, a new episode of Datacast, and today I have the pleasure to speak with uh, Ankit Jin. Ankit is a senior research scientist at Uber AI Labs, the machine learning research arm of Uber. His work primarily involves the application of deep learning methods to a variety of Uber's problems, ranging from food delivery, fraud detection, to self-driving cars. Previously, he worked in a variety of machine learning roles at Facebook, Bank of America, and other startups. He also co-authored a book on machine learning title, TensorFlow Machine Learning Projects. Additionally, he's been a featured speaker in many of the top AI conferences and university, and has also published papers in several top conferences, such as NERPS or ICLR. Uh, he earned his uh, MS from uh, UC Berkeley and BS from uh, IIT Bombay in India. So Ankit, uh, glad to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, James. So let's start out with, you know, um, kind of your educational background. Uh, you study uh, electrical engineering with a focus on communication and signal processing at the, you know, uh, IIT uh, Bombay. So, you know, would you mind quickly going over your undergrad experience? Sure. Um, I think uh, IIT was a, was a great institution in terms of uh, engineering disciplines. And also, I had a chance to interact with some of the smartest colleagues uh, back in the country at that time. Um, regarding, regarding my education experience, I think um, the main thing I got out of that one was that my, my coursework was more focused on probability, statistics, and math, which is applied to wireless communications. While that was a very growing field at that time, it caught me an understanding of the basic concepts of stats and machine learning which are applicable to a wide variety of industries. And from then on, basically, uh, I started to kind of learn more about these and that eventually became my career in the long run. And uh, yeah, so, so after finishing college, you, um, you worked for three years as a senior field engineer at Stumberger, which, you know, which is an international iField service company. So um, can you describe this career phase of yours? Yes, um, so I think this job uh, of Schlumberger as a field engineer was a very different from a statistics-based job. Uh, it was mainly working on oil rigs, helping out the drilling operations. So one, uh, while that was a great experience, the company is itself great. I learned a lot of things in terms of people com- management, communication, stakeholder management, and all those soft skills. But it did make me realize one thing, that uh, statistics is the field I love and I should go back to it as soon as possible. So I think being away from statistics for two and a half, three years made me realize my love for statistics more and more. Yeah, and, and just kind of going off right, right to that part, you, uh, after those three years, you decided to uh, go to the US and you, you pursue a master in financial engineering, 
from uh, UC Berkeley, more specifically the, the Walter Haas School of Business. So, uh, yeah, well, what is the main uh, motivation behind this decision? And, you know, why, why, why Berkeley? I was searching for the right field to enter after my stint at Shlambaje and particularly in the field of statistics. So I was looking at different kind of avenues or when I can apply. Generally from Shlambaje, an MBA is the next logical step to do. But I decided that that is not right thing for me because I wanted to be in a field where statistics is heavily used. So in that regards, after many deliberations, I decided to enter into financial engineering because finance was a field at that time which was heavily using machine learning and statistics to derive value from the financial data. And then once I started up talking to people, applying to schools, and once I got admit from a top school like Berkeley, uh, it was a no-brainer at that time. And then uh, it made me, uh, made me understand that uh, uh, this is the field that I can potentially go and um, realize my passion for statistics and also contribute to the businesses in general. I see. Just curious, you know, what, what are some of the, uh, I suppose, most useful classes that you took during, during your master at, at Berkeley? Some of the most useful classes were uh, machine learning basics was helpful uh, in terms of understanding the theory behind uh, the machine learning. Uh, there was a class on stochastic processes, uh, which is kind of heavily used in stats and even finance or stochastic calculus. That was also very, very relevant to the, to the field I work on. And there are other classes on optimizations, which is heavily used again in machine learning, uh, which, were made, which laid the foundation for me to learn more and more uh, going forward. And, uh, and I believe, you know, during your program, you also have um, an opportunity to, uh, to, do, uh, to, to intern as a, as a data scientist at Facebook. How did this opportunity come about? And, you know, what did you work on during that internship? I was not keen on, um, on going to tech industry during that time because I was doing a degree in financial engineering and I wanted to work in finance. And I was not even aware of this job as data scientist, actually. But Facebook, because being in Bay Area, uh, Berkeley being in Bay Area and Facebook also located here, they came through, uh, came for recruiting and I just applied uh, through an internal portal and got an interview call from Facebook. I had no knowledge of data science in Facebook. I had no knowledge of tech industry per se because I had never worked there. But I still uh, went for an interview based just on my statistics knowledge, right? Uh, I was lucky enough to clear their intern interviews. And uh, Facebook was gracious enough to offer me a job without me being from the same industry. I thought that at that time, it is a good way to understand this industry uh, rather than just reject it outright. Um, so I thought um, I'll take a chance and maybe intern at Facebook and see how it goes. And then we'll figure out later on what to do. So I, I took it as an opportunity uh, to kind of learn more about tech industry in general. For the project, uh, my main project at Facebook was uh, to do uh, spam detection for pages at Facebook. So you have Facebook as user profiles. You also have Facebook pages. And then my job was to detect spam pages, which should be blocked from Facebook and not helping the community in general. So I built a machine learning classifier by just computing various features from the label data that I had. Uh, and then pushing it to a machine learning systems uh, and then uh, having uh, that classifier classify this page is good or not good for the community. Um, so that gave me exposure on how the tech industry functions uh, in terms of machine learning and what kind of job profiles and work is there in particularly uh, in top tech companies like Facebook. That sounds like you, you learn some very concrete technical skill that, that, uh, that can be utilized later on for, for your career in, in general. 
you know, after finishing your program at Berkeley, you uh, start working full time uh, as a quantitative finance analyst at Bank of America, which is one of the biggest investment banking companies in the U.S. You know, what were some of the projects that you work on, you know, during this time? Um, so uh, Bank of America uh, was a good transition because I wanted to work in finance uh, and I got the job uh, that I wanted to work on, uh, particularly in the industry that I want to work on. At uh, Bank of America, obviously, it's a very big company. And it's a very a company where most of the things have been established very well because it has been around for many, many years. So I uh, worked on several statistics projects ranging from building like machine learning models to identify risk in banks' portfolios. And, do, uh, and also doing like relevant opportunity analysis on where Bank of America should invest next and then understanding those opportunities using from a statistic framework and from a prediction uh, standpoint on how this, how the ROI of those opportunities would be. You know, after roughly about close to a year at Bank of America, your next job is actually working as a data scientist at a tech company called ClearSlide, which uh, based on my, my, my prior research is a B2B platform for sales uh, engagement um, that integrates content communication and actionable insights. Uh, well, first of all, you know, uh, how was the transition from a very big, uh, you know, bank into a, a small startup environment? And, you know, uh, how did you make the transition from, from an finance analyst role to um, a data scientist role? So I think first part was that my job was in, involved a lot of statistics in Bank of America also, and also machine learning. Um, so uh, the main reason uh, for me to move industry back to tech after having an intern at Facebook, worked in finance, and then moved back to tech industry was I realized very soon that finance being while being very good, was not my cup of tea uh, in the sense that the amount of innovation that tech industry was having at that time and the amount of innovation that was happening in banking industry was starkly different. And I kind of draw, drew my experience from working at Facebook during that time. And I was also interested in working uh, for early stage startups uh, to kind of gain some uh, more on-ground knowledge on versus working at a very big company because I've, that's what I had done all my career before that on working in very big companies. So in that case, the transition from analyst to data scientist role was just more of a title difference than the work difference, I would say. At the same time, the at ClearSlide, what I had to do was learn more coding on open source tools versus proprietary tools that Bank of America always had with themselves. So it was more exposed to the general community, interact with more community in terms of open source and learning the tricks of the trade in terms of like what things are used in tech industry. So that is different than what is used maybe in finance industry. So that is what the major part that I had to invest on. And uh, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit, you know, on, on you know, your work at ClearSlide. So, you know, uh, you work on problems related to the prediction of probability, time and amounts of a sales deal close. So, you know, what are some of the unique challenges um, associated with, you know, building sales forecasting algorithms um, at ClearSlide? I think that's a great question. Sales forecasting in general is a really hard problem to predict because it is not just the data. It is also a lot of human element involved in closing a deal, right? Each sales rep is very different from each other and each potential client in a particular company or each potential point of contact in a particular company can be very different. And for that reason, uh, it is part uh, forecasting and part art, I would say, to predict sales uh, deals. What we try to do essentially is right, we try to uh, understand the data that the sales rep enters on uh, his notes. Once you have a call with a client, you enter that he's interested in my product or not. 
right? And then he is interested, but he doesn't like the pricing of the product, like those kind of things. So he enters a lot of text uh, data uh, into uh, like the intern, uh, like some systems, let's say Salesforce for, for that matter, right? Um, that you can use to understand what is the sentiment of the deal going on in terms of it's moving or it's not moving. Also, you can also try to understand the data from call logs, uh, when you have shared, uh, like a sales rep has shared a presentation with a particular client, how many presentation views they got, how much they have spent the time on uh, viewing a particular slide deck, uh, and all those kind of implicit signals, I would call it, to kind of understand whether the sales deal has a potential to close or not based on what has happened in the historical sales deals. So we use this data and we try to predict using machine learning, uh, but there is a catch in this kind of problem settings that there can be biases on how sales have entered this data many a times, right? And it's not, uh, it is not um, like suggested bias. Basically, it is basically how people think and it, and also they are very different from each sales rep to another. For example, I'll give you, um, in this case, this great sales rep uh, don't care much for about entering all the data while the average sales rep uh, enter a lot of data to communicate to their manager. Right. So, um, so in that case, what happens is there's a bias inherent that some deals which are not going to close has a lot of information and some deals which are kind of definitely going to close has sometimes less information. And that creates bias in our data, which, uh, which is very hard to capture. Obviously we did some things to kind of capture that. And finally, also that like the data set is not very huge, like you would say a Facebook style data or Google style data. Uh, enterprise sales data is like very small, like you can only approach thousands of companies, not millions of companies, right? And which kind of rules out so many state of the art, like deep learning and everything uh, for this use case. But that's, that's uh, interesting to hear, you know, try to uh, detecting that, that implicit signal of, of what makes a sales is good is, is, is actually challenging more than, more than it's hard, right? And then all you would experiment that, that you can really know, uh, have that domain knowledge of understanding how the sales process, how the sales workflow looks like, that you can do feature engineering and you uh, build that product model to, to, to do that, to, to, you know, to, to get a good performance, I believe. Sure. So, yeah, so um, you, uh, you work at Clear Slide for uh, more than a year, one and a half years. In the later half of 2015, you uh, decided to, uh, you know, move back to India, uh, specifically in Bangalore and uh, to, to get a new role as a head of data science and analytics at uh, RunR, which is a B2B platform that offers hyper-local logistics services that partners with merchants in India. So what urged you to make this career transition? Yeah, it, uh, the move was uh, more personal. Actually, I had an issue with my visa that I had to move back to India. But uh, I could have moved to any other country, actually, uh, not being in the US. I decided to move back to India specifically because I've never worked in tech industry in my home country. So I wanted to see a flavor of that uh, on how uh, the India is progressing in terms of tech. Uh, Bangalore is definitely a hub of tech and I wanted to join specifically a startup which was growing very rapidly uh, and uh, kind of help them in their stage of growth with machine learning and data science. So I think that was my motivation to join a particular startup in India. You know, kind of related to George Spirinat Ranra, while I was doing research on, on, on you, I, I found that you, you wrote an article, which is a very, uh, very detailed, called uh, How Food Delivery Can Be a Sustainable Business Back in 2016. This piece actually covers different parties involved in a food delivery business, provides some uh, practical solution designed to satisfy you know, the expectation of, of these parties, 
as well as a couple of optimization that can make the food delivery business model even more efficient. So yeah, would you mind uh, unpacking uh, this article for, for, the, for the audience? Yeah, I'll not go into the mathematical details, but what this article does essentially is explore some mathematical side on how food delivery can be a sustainable business. So it talks a lot about economics. It talks a lot about the queuing theory on how the orders are placed in the system and uh, how orders are dispatched uh, overall, right? And how um, all of this combined uh, can be a sustainable business. Uh, it specifically explores the economics of the business changes with different strategies and how it can work out by exploring, exploiting those strategies. So some of the strategies that I talk about in this article is like pooling of orders. Like if two orders are going to the same building, maybe you should pull them from the same restaurant if they are. So if two orders from the same restaurant are going to the same building, you should pull those two orders together so that you efficiently uh, you have optimize on the cost of delivery so that uh, you charge less to the customer, charge less to the restaurant and still it's a sustainable business. Another thing I talk about is like delayed dispatch in which that we take into account that when an order is placed from the customer, the driver needs to be dispatched only after some time because the restaurant will take some time to prepare the food. So if the restaurant takes 15 minutes of time to prepare the food, you should not send the driver right away and then make him wait for like 10, 15 minutes and that is cost him time uh, while he can deliver some other order during that time. So I talk about these ideas on um, how Runner had implemented at that time and then how those are helping us achieve a sustainability in terms of business uh, and then I take a, from a, I take a mathematical side to kind of prove that it works. I see. Awesome. Yeah, thanks a lot. I'll be sure to include it, uh, the link to the piece on, on the show notes because uh, I think that's a, that's a great, very informative in, in trying to make that argument that food delivery can, can, can be sustainable uh, even though this is a very complicated marketplace with a lot of size, right? So, and you know, I'm just curious, you, you spent roughly about two years in Runner. How, how was your, uh, let's say, if you have to compare your experience at that time working in India versus a couple of your previous team working in a company in the US, what, what are the difference between uh, kind of the tech, uh, tech culture in India or in Bangalore and Silicon Valley or probably more, more relevant? Sure, uh, I think that's a great question. Uh, so things have changed definitely now, but at least uh, from, uh, I'll talk about the 2016 part when I was there. I think the uh, Bangalore has adopted a lot of things that Silicon Valley has. So I think it is, uh, I would say an upcoming Silicon Valley and not exactly a Silicon Valley. Uh, it's just that uh, Bangalore has started to pick up things um, like relatively like later, I would say like within 10 years or something like that. So that's where the lot of growth is happening in terms of ecosystem. But still, uh, the ecosystem is like in Silicon Valley, you see a lot more mature ecosystem of entrepreneurs, VCs, founders, technologists. The ecosystem is kind of at uh, in a growth phase in Bangalore. But I think that I'm, I feel very optimistic because... Bangalore has adopted a lot of good things about Silicon Valley in that case. In early 2017, you uh, you came back to the US and you um, start working as a data scientist at Uber. So, um, you know, what what about Uber that uh, attracted to you to come work there? So Uber is definitely a, a great company um, and trying to do the, uh, like trying to build a very global business in this area of logistics and it's market leader and still it's a market leader. My, my move was uh, motivated by my wife's job in US. So I was, and I was equally excited to move back to Silicon Valley and contribute to the tech businesses here and solve some hardest problems that Silicon Valley has. For my move to Uber, uh, I was doing a similar stuff uh, back at Runner. 
right? Um, I was doing logistics, on-demand delivery, and I was in a similar business. So Uber was a natural transition for me coming back from India. And uh, Uber was gracious enough to offer me a job to work with them. Fantastic. And so during your, your first year at Uber, you worked on a couple of problems related to user level forecasting and self-driving car simulation. So uh, can you talk more about that? Yeah, I cannot talk more about the self-driving part, uh, but I'll definitely talk about the user level forecasting part. The user level forecasting, what it tries to do is, uh, uh, the basic idea was we give a lot of incentives to drivers, like for t- drive 10 trips and we'll get you $50 kind of thing, right? Or $100, whatever the uh, amount may be, right? As an example. Um, so designing those incentive structures takes into account a lot of understanding on how drivers would behave given an incentive, incentive structure. So should it be take 10 trips, get $50 or should it be to get 10 trips, get $55 or $75, right? So there is no right answer. Uh, so uh, what we have to understand is like how the drivers have behaved historically when given different incentives and use that data to understand that how much incentives and how should we structure the incentives uh, to try maximum adoption and also the maximum benefit to the drivers. In that case, what this model was trying to do is like understand each driver's behavior on the platform and understand the sensitivity of different incentive structures and trying to come up with a holistic incentive structure for a city, right, which makes sense, basically, Uh, which makes sense in terms of driver satisfaction, uh, which makes sense in terms of economics for Uber, and which makes sense for our customers also if there's an impact there. So for that one, we actually developed a novel LSTM-based forecasting model, uh, which was quite unique at that time in terms of uh, how we use the data, how we pre-process the data, and how the uh, LSTM was kind of tailor-made for this kind of use case. Yeah, and I believe you get a couple of talks about uh, this project uh, at at O'Reilly. And this is a very interesting, you know, you use the LSTM model, you know, to predict the tree for each individual. Uh, driver in in that in that short term, and I think given given that the um, the metric is is the incentive, which is, I mean, it's, it's hard to measure. I, I think that's something here a very um, kind of interesting use case of how uh, neural network can be used in, in in a very particular highly, you know, business focused problem. Right. Yeah. After one year, you know, kind of working, you know, as a data scientist at uh, solving that those those type of problem at Uber, in um, early 20, 2018, you uh, you become a senior research scientist at the Uber AI Labs, and you focused on sort of deploying AI research uh, solution uh, to address some of the uh, Uber business problem. So, um, you know, I'm just curious, what are some of the different types of problem that, uh, you know, researchers at Uber AI Labs, uh, you know, work on? Uber AI's mission is to kind of up-level AI in the company. Um, so we work with all the cutting-edge technologies that you would think of today, it's like reinforcement learning, um, graph representation learning, Bayesian optimization, meta learning, and among many others. So many researchers in Uber AI uh, publish their work in top, top academic and industrial conferences. Um, but additionally, we also do a lot of work in terms of uh, solving Uber's hardest problem uh, and apply the latest research to them. So basically, solve apply latest research to the Uber's hardest problem to kind of improve or have a step change in the metric that those problems are trying to solve. Kind of want to focus on, on a specific use case, which um, which you will work on very heavily during your time at Uber AI Labs. Thus far, you know, a very prominent project that you were involved with 
is to develop a large-scale graph learning algorithms for Uber Eats, which is, you know, Uber Foods uh, ordering and delivery platform. Obviously, you, you already have a lot of experience at this, at this point, you know, even just in that runner. So, you know, the problem suddenly is familiar. And in fact, you also, uh, your team actually wrote a very in-depth technical post on, on the Uber's engineering blog called um, Food Discovery with Uber Eats using graph learning to power recommendations. So, yeah, can you um, kind of unpack the, uh, the detail of the post, including, you know, um, the, the idea of using graph neural networks to improve Uber Eats recommendation, sort of the design of the data and the training pipeline, as well as the couple of the direction for um, recommended system deployed scale. Sure. Uh, so I think this is a this project is a perfect example of how we marry research and uh, latest research to products at Uber. Um, so I think uh, I'll just give uh, what graph neural networks are all about. So graph neural networks can be thought of applying like deep learning on graphs. So we all heard of deep learning on images, deep learning on text, but this is deep learning on graph structured data, which is kind of getting a lot of traction in academic community and as well as in industrial community. For this work, we were in inspired by the work at Pinterest to use this class of methods uh, in recommender systems. Actually, we derived a page from their own uh, work and then modified it to suit our use case. So in this work, uh, we mainly learn vector representations of restaurants, dishes, and users to power better recommendations. Essentially, uh, let's, let me give an example. If you ordered a pizza before, we learned that representation of pizza and you should be similar to each other in some notion of similarity in uh, vector sense. And then, then finally, we understand, also understand that pizza is similar to pasta, right? And you have ordered pizza a lot of time. So we might recommend you pasta next time using these representations. So I think that is the essential idea that uh, we try to learn the similar structures on what you have ordered, what things are similar to each other in real, real world setting using graph uh, data and then try to um, uh, learn those representations that can essentially power the recommendations that are uh, given to you. This is an improvement actually from, an, there are other existing techniques that people have used in different companies like Netflix, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, but this is an improvement on uh, from those techniques, uh, general techniques that are there available uh, in terms of it captures both the content and collaborative part of uh, the recommendation system model together in the same model. So I think uh, that is the beauty of graph neural networks in this case. The one thing I would say is like our, our design of data and data, data and training pipeline, obviously we were doing a, a per city model. So every city had their own graph, had their own model. Uh, and we were able to scale to a lot of cities uh, where Uber, Uber Eats operates. And then the data pipeline was mainly designed to kind of train the, these large scale graphs for different cities in parallel. Uh, and then obtain the representation, save the representation and power recommendations using those rep representations in some sense. The future basically of recommendation system is like to improve on this uh, representations more and more by incorporating a lot more data that you would not have incorporated in general. Like we can incorporate cuisine types uh, in the graph itself. We can incorporate price of the product in the graph itself. Right, and all those kind of data which were not previously present can be incorporated to kind of improve the recommendation systems further. What you say is essentially is additional features to 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 the model, making more diverse. I, I I think you know the blog post has, has a lot of great detail, especially you talk about uh, the use of you know the it recommends a couple of research paper on on graph neural networks, 
uh, Grab Sage, which you already mentioned, uh, was, was uh, inspired by, by PinSage, right, from, from Pinterest, which is really interesting. And uh, there's also that uh, a research paper called, called Metagraph, Fisher Link Prediction via, via Meta Learning, which, which is also kind of the research that, that uh, you and you know, um, your team work on. So I definitely put that on the show notes so people who sort of uh, have a rich interest in, in, in graph neural network can, can have, kind of read that literature and have, have a more thorough understanding of how this uh, research selection look like. Yeah, but uh, I'm just curious, you know, obviously this uh, end-to-end system has have a lot of different components from, you know, uh, de- designing the model, uh, apply internal data, and then you have to create a pipeline and, and test it uh, online. But what is like the, the biggest challenge or like, you know, the, the most time consuming aspect uh, of, of this system design and how do you, you know, kind of fit things together so, so you know, everything's work. The first uh, first part is like having a mindset of how do you scale, how will you scale this model is very important right from the get-go. So when you are designing your experiments in terms of like uh, choosing the right models or um, designing more complicated models, you have to have in mind that how will you scale it if need be. That if, let's say if this works, how will you, will you be able to scale this model to a global model which where Uber Eats operates. Um, for that purpose, always uh, we have this understanding that uh, a city level model will help us scale uh, a lot better. That helped us in terms of uh, designing better algorithms also and also uh, scaling in terms of uh, all the cities that Uber Eats operates. The second part was how do you generate these graphs in a scalable manner for all the cities of the world daily. Um, so I think we had a pipeline on uh, getting the right data in the shape and form uh, and then generating these large scale graphs uh, which were powering the uh, model. So there was an input to the model, but I think the good amount of work was also spent in generating these city level graphs on a daily basis. So there was a lot of data in data engineering and machine learning pipelining that was required for that. Mm. At the same time, we had to kind of train the neural network in a stipulated time, like you cannot train it for like three days. Uh, because the data changes every day and we need embeddings every day. So we had to kind of design a neural network such that it trains in few hours, if not few, like at least at least within a day, if not a few hours. Um, so I think that was another consideration on how do we design the hyperparameters of the neural network so that it trains within like some stipulated time that we have already set for ourselves. So I think that was also another consideration. And then the last one was how do you, uh, once you have those embeddings, how it integrates with the existing recommender systems, right? Uh, to kind of power the recommendation. So kind of understanding that what things need to be in what shape, uh, maybe store the data in Hive and then disperse to another new technologies like Cassandra or something like that, that can help power the real time recommendations that are happening. So I think there was a consideration on how do you scale the model and how do you generate the data for the scaling the model? Uh, how does the model training can be scaled up in terms of number of hours? And then finally, how does it integrate with the existing recommender systems that were there? Thanks for sharing that. I think that's a, that's a great you know, insight, especially on how a big company such as Schumer designed machine learning system to uh, handle trillion amounts of data points. Obviously, at, at that scale, there's a lot of engineering issues that, that might come up. And like you already just mentioned, having that, that mindset of designing system, that, that scale, at, at that problem is, is critical, you know, at least in, within the Uber's environment. I found out that uh, outside of work, you also kind of very active within the data science community in general, uh, in, you know, interacting with, with other people, you know, uh, we talked a bit about kind of, you know, you're speaking at a variety of uh, conferences, but you actually also have written a technical book called uh, TensorFlow Machine Learning Projects, 
which uh, teach how to uh, exploit the benefits of using TensorFlow in a variety of real-world projects. So uh, what is your motivation for, for writing it? And you know, what are some of the uh, sample projects that readers can learn? Yeah, I think that's a good question. So I think what my thought process was that uh, when I started learning TensorFlow myself, so TensorFlow was released in 2015 and I was learning it around the same time. Uh, I stumbled upon many tutorials, including the official ones that TensorFlow had on its website, uh, which were good in terms of uh, explaining the various concepts on how TensorFlow works. While that was helpful in understanding the basics, uh, most of my learning came from building projects with TensorFlow. And that is when I realized that there is a need for a resource that teaches by uh, that teaches using a learn by doing approach. I was, I've been a very big fan of this. Like basically you, you learn maximum when you build something out of a technology rather than just learning the basics of that technology. So I didn't find it myself when I was trying to learn it. So I thought I'll help out other people in terms of designing something uh, which can help them build projects which can be easily deployable in their companies using TensorFlow. So for that reason, the book is unique in the way that it teaches machine learning theory, TensorFlow utilities, and also programming concepts, all while developing a project in which you can have fun building and is of practical use. So that was the major idea uh, behind publishing the book. One of my favorite parts of the book is the chapter basically, uh, is a chapter on uh, generating uncertainty in traffic science classifier using Bayesian neural networks. Uh, like with the development of the self-driving cars, traffic science detection is a major problem that needs to be solved. This chapter explains an advanced AI concept of Bayesian neural networks and shows step-by-step step how to use those to detect traffic signs using TensorFlow. And, and, uh, and I've got some good comments in terms of like some of the readers have already started uh, using this model for their practical applications that they are working on. So I think that is how I think about how you should learn uh, particularly in the AI community is by learn by doing approach. Awesome. And I just got a chance to kind of read through the description. It seems that you, you try to tackle a, a very comprehensive uh, amount of, of areas from NLP to, you know, autoencoders to, you know, recording system to, you know, generative models. It seems like a lot of people can, can benefit just from walking through a couple of those projects, right? And, um, you know, one, one quick note, what is your thoughts on the debate between uh, TensorFlow versus PyTorch for well, from, from, a, from an industry perspective and as well as from an academic perspective? Well, things are changing very swiftly, so it's hard to kind of say which one is better than other. But I think uh, TensorFlow always used to be attract me for industrial applications. And PyTorch was very friendly in terms of research coding. But with TensorFlow 2.0, they tried to address some of the flaws that TensorFlow 1.0 had uh, and make it more similar to PyTorch. And then PyTorch has seen change itself to make it more suitable for industrial applications by having tools which can help you deploy your PyTorch model in production very easily. But still, I think personally, uh, I, I, I think PyTorch has caught up a lot in terms of industrial applications uh, and TensorFlow has lagged behind still in terms of ease of usability in, uh, as compared to PyTorch for in academic settings. So what we have seen in industrial, in, in academic conferences at least, the PyTorch is a clear winner right now. But uh, in industries, uh, traditionally, like in my project on Uber Eats was developed in TensorFlow. But now people have started to use PyTorch also in industry applications. So industry, I think it's evenly split. But in academics, PyTorch has a lead right now. Just in terms of like, you know, let's say for someone who go from academia to, to industry, 
you know, assuming that they have very good uh, theoretical knowledge, have, have a good understanding of statistics and machine learning, you know, in order to make the transition into industry, it seems like there's some sort of the, these whole different things in terms of understanding the product, the business, as well as, you know, being a good software engineer with, with deployment. How, how would you advise for someone to, to kind of spend the time learning this vastly different, you know, domain areas to be uh, more competitive when, when you try to apply for a role in the industry? Yeah. Um, so one thing I would say is that obviously uh, you should learn the theory. Uh, that's a base start, right? Uh, you should uh, have an understanding of the basic machine learning algorithms and statistics. At the same time, try to uh, build something end to end, as in uh, when you are in school or something. Uh, that will help you in understanding on what things are also involved uh, when you kind of try to integrate it end to end. Like maybe. Uh, these days, you can build um, TensorFlow, use a TensorFlow JS, which is JavaScript of TensorFlow, and build a, a Chrome, like basically build a web app, uh, which can do many things on TensorFlow, right? Um, like your image detection, your post detection, and uh, many other things. So try to use the existing tutorials that are out there on building something end to end that people can just use. Uh, you don't have to have thousands of users, uh, even you and your friends, they can use. Uh, that could be a good understanding on how the systems work end-to-end using machine learning. Um, at the same time, try to read up the technologies on how to build scalable pipelines and everything. Uh, scalable pipelines like some techniques like uh, containerization using Docker, Kubernetes. Uh, just have a basic understanding of those things also. At the same, uh, will help you become a better uh, machine learning, applied machine learning person in the industry. Also, uh, I would also advise generally that uh, Keeping up with machine learning research is very hard because uh, the amount of papers that are published every day, nobody can keep up. Uh, in general, try to pick up an area where you're interested in. Let's say for me, it is graphs, but it can be NLP for you. It can become provision for you or some others. Uh, but try to uh, understand what is going on in that field so that you are abreast with the latest in the latest in research also. Yeah, th- thanks, for, thanks for sharing that, that advice. And I think that they, they are very valid helpful things that, um, you know, people can, can rely on. So, you know, reflecting on your career thus far, you know, how do you think that your educational backgrounds in uh, electrical engineering and financial analysis contribute to your work in, uh, in machine learning? Yes, uh, I think uh, I always think that having a variety of experiences is also always helpful in thinking about open-ended problems from a variety of different angles. Many times I've seen people entering an MLAI from other fields and having a world-class contributions in AI, particularly because they have a diverse viewpoint that people in the industry uh, were not realizing that could be the case. So um, I always view my experiences in a very, very positive light on both uh, engineering side and financial side. Particularly electrical engineering helped me expose to the wonderful field of statistics, which has essentially become my career now. Mm-hmm. And also like finance industry helped me take the best practices on how finance, uh, ML in finance works and apply to tech industry. This is particularly valuable because machine learning in finance has been a known concept for years and years. Uh, tech industry also has been doing for a good amount of years, but still uh, is relatively a new concept uh, in tech industry rather than the finance industry, I feel. So in that sense, I was able to pick up the best practices there uh, and apply to tech industry. And also um, my uh, undergraduate and graduate degrees uh, helped me to uh, understand the theoretical understanding of statistics, which is my career right now. Yeah, it seems like you uh, learn very well on how, how to 
kind of leverage the skills that you learn from one view and le- learn to translate that in, into you know your relevant career. And I think that uh, that is something but that uh, that that is important because you know a, a very important aspect of becoming a, a better data scientist is, is having that you know, domain knowledge of uh, understanding the, the current problem at hand. Yeah. So, uh, so Ankit, at this part of our conversation, I want to move on to the, the final segment of the of the interview, in which I'm going to ask you uh, three rapid fire question, and then and, you know you just can just give the uh, you know the uh, the tactical answers for pe- for for the listeners. Question number one is that name three people in the data science universe whose work you really admire. I think there are a lot of people doing very good work overall. Uh, it's hard to pick and choose uh, like this, but I'll pick up three based on the amount of impact they had in the industry and uh, basically that inspires me to do great work myself. Uh, so I think the first one is Andrew Ning, uh, Andrew NG. He is great in terms of like not only uh, being a great researcher and a great professor, but I think he has imparted knowledge of his expertise uh, through millions and millions of people by his teachings, which I really admire about him. Um, and I think that that's a great way to give back and uh, make the community better overall. The second one I feel is a Geoff Hinton. Uh, Geoff Hinton is pioneer in deep learning work, which has really changed the way we do machine learning today uh, and has made uh, like billions of dollars for many industries uh, from his pioneering work in just uh, deep learning. So I'm really inspired by doing the level of work uh, that Geoff Hinton has done, uh, particularly for the industry. And third one I'll pick up is Jeff Dean, who is a creator of TensorFlow. Uh, which has essentially democratized deep learning uh, to uh, pretty much everyone, and even a high school student today can use TensorFlow and build deep learning models. So I think that's the way you power a lot of communities. Uh, I really get inspired by these three people in general. Uh, question number two, uh, name one book that you could recommend for people to develop a better analytical mindset. Yeah, my favorite one is this Elements of Statistical Learning from uh, Robert Tipshirani. Uh, he's a very accomplished uh, researcher himself. And this book is great in terms of that it has all the basis covered in terms of theory and applications. And also it's it, like this, this book is rooted in theory, but avoids like long proofs uh, that might uh, kind of not resonate with many people. Uh, and also has a, offers a lot of guidance on practical machine learning. So this book is a keeper, not only you can read it, but also keep it as a reference book for all your life. I think this is a great resource to kind of refer back every time. And uh, finally, imagine that you could send out a tweet to all the aspiring data and research scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Yeah, I think the one easiest tweet, which is kind of most relevant also in my opinion, uh, is uh, data, both quantity and quality, trumps better algorithms. And start developing passion for data, and you'll see yourself becoming a much better data scientist. Well, that, that's a great way to, to end up our interview. So, Ankit, I really appreciate you kind of sharing your experience, your educational background in um, physical engineering and financial engineering, um, your experience working at banks and uh, at startup, and right now some of the very interesting work at Uber as well as, you know, your book on, on TensorFlow and a couple of helpful uh, advice for, for people who um, want to become better data scientists, in, especially in the industry. And so um, I'll be sure to include most of the uh, links and, and resources that we discussed in this conversation on the show notes. So, uh, you know, listeners can have a chance to dig a little bit deeper in, in some of the things that we talked about and uh, reach out to you if they have any further questions. 
So yeah, I'll get, uh, appreciate it and enjoy the rest of your day. Cool. Thanks a lot, James. Uh, thanks for having me. And I think it's a wonderful initiative you have taken. I think it will help a lot of people in general. Thank you. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.